Republicans to wake up is... The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. And I'm additionally humbled by the support I receive from listeners to the Peter B. Collins Show. Today we'll single out Nancy Kilgore, Michael McMillan, and James Balk. They are monthly subscribers, and you can subscribe voluntarily for as little as $5 a month. The info's on my website at peterbcollins.com. Our music of the moment from Michael Franti. And I've been using this song as theme music for four or five years now. It's called Time to Go Home. And if you'd like to check out the blog on the homepage at PeterBCollins.com, I recently wrote a post that said I'm happy to eat some of my own words because the preceding blog post uh, was kind of a complaining one, a whining one, where I said, where are the homecoming photographs? Where are the heartfelt moments on the evening news of troops returning to grateful family members here in the U.S.? And I criticized the American left for its passivity in not holding Obama to the campaign promises that he made. And so, on the heels of an announcement on February 16th that U.S. troop levels have been reduced to 98,000 in Iraq, I am pleased to eat those words. Not the part about the passivity of the American left, though. We've still got a lot of work to do to demilitarize the Obama administration and We'll talk about uh, the situation in Afghanistan here shortly. We're joined by Professor Juan Cole. He is the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. And he has a uh, blog that I recommend to you. I often go to it for a view that gets beyond the corporate media reach in this country. That's called Informed Comment, and you can find it at juancole.com. Professor, good to talk with you again. Hello, Peter. It's always great to be on. And uh, first to my point about the troop levels in Iraq, there really uh, was a quiet period over the last few months where nobody domestically has been talking about 
the situation in Iraq. It's punctuated by uh, reports of violence uh, that uh, seem to have declined somewhat, but the carnage continues. Uh, On the recent Hajj, uh, there were a number of attacks uh, on Shiites, and uh, so it's hardly a country that we can call peaceful and uh, democratic. But uh, we are drawing down our troops. As I mentioned, 98,000 is the official level now. And uh, that was coupled with a commitment to uh, bring another 48,000 home by August of this year to get us down to about 50,000. And then the further promise is that all of those will be out by the end of next year, 2011. Uh, First to this initial point, uh, are you pleased to see U.S. forces drawn down? And is the 98,000 figure reliable? Oh, yeah, the 98,000 figure is reliable. You know, you can't really uh, mess with military statistics very much because all those guys are attached to families, uh, and they know Mm -hmm. uh, whether whether their son or daughter is over there. Uh, So if somebody's uh, over there or if they're killed, uh, it's public. Uh, And, uh, well, there's actually too many troops in Iraq uh, considering uh, the situation. What happened was that the Maliki government, the government Prime Minister Nouria Maliki, uh, played hardball with the Bush administration. I think he was helped by the prospect that Barack Obama would be elected. Uh, and he got these pledges from the U.S. to withdraw on a timetable. Mm-hmm. And so far, uh, the timetable has been carried out perfectly uh, in accordance with the wishes of the Iraqi parliament. Now, I think the Bush administration, and particularly Dick Cheney, negotiated those agreements in bad faith. They fully intended to renege on them in various ways. And I know that the top generals in the Pentagon were furious about the timetable, and they lobbied Obama hard to try to overturn it. But Obama uh, took advantage of the the signed agreement to actually uh, implement it. Mm -hmm. So uh, 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 June 30th of uh, 2009, it was stipulated that U.S. troops would stop patrolling a major Iraqi cities independently. Uh, and they could patrol only if they were asked to come along by the Iraqi military. And uh, General Ray Odierno, the commander in Iraq, I fully expected that uh, they'd go on patrolling. It's just that they'd be invited along uh, with the Iraqi colleagues that they'd trained. But it turns out almost no invitations came in uh, for joint patrolling. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's still a dangerous country. I don't want to take anything away from the bravery of our troops over there, but I think they're mainly involved in packing up. And they are generally confined to bases, is that right? Yeah, they can't, uh, they can't go on uh, active military patrols without uh, uh, an invitation from the Iraqi uh, authorities, and those invitations have been few and far between. And to the middle part of the Pentagon announcement, is it uh, feasible to have uh, the troop levels down to 50,000 by August of this year? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's no, no problem with taking the troops out. In fact, uh, at the height of the uh, troop escalation, or so-called surge, there are 160,000 troops in Iraq. Uh, so you can see that since Obama came in, they've already pulled out over 60,000. Uh, so, uh, yeah, one, they're there mainly to um, uh, help hold the elections. Iraq is such a basket case uh, and is so prone to uh, political violence 
that you couldn't really have a parliamentary election unless the country is locked down. Uh, so for three days, they just forbid anybody to drive a, a vehicle. You have to walk, and it's good if you stocked up on your groceries beforehand. Mm -hmm. And uh, the U.S. military is the institution that's capable of locking down the country so the elections can be held. And, and the polling stations, you know, you can, you can only really vote if you can walk to your polling station that day. So they lock it down the day before so that people can't preposition car bombs uh, because if they didn't do this, the, the polling stations would all get blown up. There'd be carnage. So uh, the, the main reason for which there are 98,000 U.S. troops in Iraq at the moment uh, is, is to hold those elections. And once they're held on March 7th, uh, after that, uh, they don't have very much to do. They're still training Iraqi troops uh, to provide security, and uh, they... They do some logistics. They provide, you know, uh, water, ammunition, uh, uh, air support, and so forth to the Iraqi military. But all those things are being turned over. And, Professor, we'll come back to the elections and the jockeying uh, over former Baathists in a moment. But uh, the third part of this uh, Pentagon announcement is that they are holding to the SOFA, the Status of Forces Agreement that you referred to, that was negotiated in the latter days of the Bush administration. Uh, and they promised to have all U.S. troops out by the end of 2011. Now, this is the hardest part for me to find credible because of the uh, big investment in permanent bases that we have made there. And it's hard to imagine that the U.S., uh, that the Pentagon and the Obama administration are ready to walk away entirely. Do you expect a residual force of at least 20,000 to uh, remain in Iraq for the foreseeable future, and I'm talking at least five years? Uh, well, I know that the Brookings Institution and the U.S. Pentagon and uh, many movers and shakers in Washington are still hoping for something like that. Uh, but no, I don't, expect, uh, I don't expect there to be a division uh, in Iraq uh, at the end of this process. I think this is like the Philippines. Uh, I can't tell you how much the Navy wanted to stay at the, that base in Subic Bay. Uh, but when the Filipino Senate uh, asked them to leave, I mean, they only really had two choices. One was to militarily occupy the place or, or else to acquiesce. And, uh, you know, the United States does militarily occupy places uh, to get its way, but... Uh, I think of the vast majority of the over 700 bases in the world uh, are the results of bilateral agreements, at least between the U.S. and the local elite. Mm -hmm. So the Iraqis don't want this. Uh, it's very clear the Iraqi parliament wouldn't put up with 20,000 tro U.S. troops on Iraqi soil. Uh, they've, th this thing went very bad from their point of view, and they just don't, the, the Americans are a, a bad reminder of bad days. Uh, there are two million uh, internally displaced, a million, over a million externally displaced, uh, very large numbers. We don't know exact numbers, hundreds of thousands probably of uh, dead, uh, millions of wounded, millions of widows. And, and they, they, they think they've got an army now, uh, and it is due to the U.S. and NATO training, uh, that uh, can keep basic order in the country. And they don't need U.S. troops, and they don't want them there. Mm -hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see, because I, I, I would like to be wrong about this, but I just uh, have a hard time getting over my suspicions that uh, somehow we will find a reason to retain, you know, a substantial U.S. force there 
and to retain control over the bases that we've built. Well, your suspicions are not completely unjustified because, as I said, there are people who do want that and are jockeying for it. But the other thing to say, Peter, is that in a way, in a way they've already got what they want in the sense that uh, the U.S. has taken military control of the Persian Gulf region. They don't really need a division in Iraq. Uh, so we, the, the U.S. has the Al-Odeid air base in Qatar, mm-hmm. uh, and it has a naval base in Bahrain. Uh, and between the two of them, they can fly missions anywhere in the Persian Gulf. Uh, they can put aircraft carriers off the littoral of any Gulf country. Uh, and to tell you the truth, from, from the point of view of the Marines or from some of the lighter mobile units, uh, a, a, a base of 20,000 Army guys doesn't really give you any, any value added. Mm-hmm. So General Anthony Zinni, uh, a former CENTCOM commander uh, of U.S. forces in the Middle East and a Marine general who's now retired, uh, told me once, he said, you know, we, we, we Marines just don't believe you need a base over there. Uh, if, you, if you need to do something, uh, you, can, you can bring things over by airlift in uh, short order nowadays. So, you know, there's, there's different factions in the Pentagon, I think, uh, probably jockeying over this. But I'll tell you, I don't think Obama wants, uh, wants our troops there, and the Iraqi parliament doesn't, the Iraqi militias uh, don't, and uh, I, just, I, I think they're getting out. Uh, and, and it wouldn't be the first time that such a thing has happened, uh, as I said, uh, we were asked to leave the Philippines, and we did. Doesn't mean we won't be powerful there. Mm-hmm. It just means we don't have a military base there. Now, Professor, you referred to the March 7 elections that are scheduled, and these, uh, you know, been the source of great controversy and the uh, long-running battle between Sunnis who uh, were at the time loyal to Saddam Hussein and the Shiites who are the dominant population group and who were empowered by the way uh, Paul Bremer structured the Constitution uh, as it was uh, imposed on or embraced by the Iraqis. Uh, People can take their pick on that. But uh, there's been an effort to disqualify as many as 500 people who would seek office because of ties to uh, Saddam and the the Ba'athist past. And uh, my friend Robert Dreyfus, who writes for The Nation, uh, has a post that's up at thenation.com, and it's a, a quick interview he did with General Odierno, who was in Washington yesterday on the uh, 16th of February. And Dreyfus asks him about Ali al-Lami, L-A-M-I, who has been put in charge of uh, what was called the Debathification Commission and now has a, ni- a neat little name called the Accountability and Justice Commission, or AJC. He reports to Ahmed Chalabi, the former CIA asset who uh, many people believe uh, helped set the stage with some of the phony reports of mobile weapons labs and WMD uh, for Bush's decision to invade Iraq. And so with Chalabi and this guy Lamy uh, in charge of this commission, uh, many are suspicious. And uh, Odierno himself uh, was very critical of Al-Lami, uh, saying that uh, we had him locked up, uh, we suspected him of, of ties to a specific terrorist event uh, in Iraq, but we didn't have enough proof to convict him, so we had to release him. And Odierno expresses deep regret that he's now in charge of this AJC. What is your take on this process, and uh, will it en- enable Sunnis to 
uh, get involved uh, in this this uh, government that's being developed in Iraq. Yeah, well, it is true that uh, the uh, this commission disqualified over 500 uh, candidates uh, out of some 6,000 uh, that had announced they would run for parliament. And uh, they weren't predominantly Sunni. In fact, probably 60% of those disqualified were Shiite. Oh. Uh, but they uh, were known to have been members of the Ba'ath Party back in the 70s or 80s, or they had been vocal in, uh, in complaining about the exclusion of the Ba'ath Party from public life in Iraq, which is an article of the Iraqi Constitution. So they were questioning the new Iraqi Constitution and its ban on Ba'athists. Uh, in their view, you know, it was... Uh, uh, and, and some of them were complaining that, that, that such restrictions on a party or, or, or a form of speech are, are incompatible with the provisions of the Constitution that guarantee freedom of conscience. So in any case, uh, uh, the, this commission uh, uh, disqualified them. But among the people that disqualified were, uh, was uh, Saleh al-Mutlaq, who uh, is in Parliament, has been for some time, and leads a small block of 11 uh, parliamentarians out of 275, uh, and, and his block is one of the few secular uh, little parties in, in the parliament. Most of the parties that have done well in the parliamentary elections have been religiously based, either Sunni or Shiite, uh, uh, among the Arabs at least. So uh, to get rid of a sitting parliamentarian who was not known to have you know, had ties to violence or uh, to have been disruptive uh, is very suspicious. And here's what I think. I think the Shiites had dominated the parliamentary elections, the last two elections in 2005, uh, because they were united, and uh, uh, the spiritual leader, Ali Sistani, had gotten them all together into one big coalition. Uh, this time, uh, there are two major Shiite blocs running, and so the Shiite vote is split. Now, the Iraqi parliament says that the uh, coalition or party with the largest number of seats gets the first shot at forming a government and electing the prime minister. So what would happen if the two Shiite parties uh, whittled each other down, split the Shiite vote, and then a, a cross-sectarian uh, secular party like that led by former prime minister Ayat Alawi, uh, say, got slightly more votes than the, other two, than the two Shiite then Alawi would have a shot at becoming prime minister. So I think Lamy, the head of this commission, got rid of Mutlaq and some of the other Sunni secularists because they were allied with Alawi, and this is a way of making sure that the more secular uh, coalition doesn't have a chance to form a government. Now, here's a further comment from General Odierno uh, referencing Lamy. He is, and Shalabi, clearly are influenced by Iran. We have direct intelligence that tells us that. They've had several meetings in Iran, meeting with a man named Mohandas, who is an ex-council representative. Uh, he was on the terrorist watch list for a bombing in Kuwait in the 80s, and he sits at the right-hand side of the Quds Force Commandant. Uh, do you see connections between Tehran and uh, these actors in uh, framing this uh, upcoming election in Iraq? Well, sure. The, uh, the major Shiite uh, party in parliament uh, so far has been the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq, 
that was formed by Ayatollah Khomeini in Tehran among Iraqi uh, expatriates in 1982, uh, and its leaders are very close to uh, the mullahs in Tehran. So uh, it's certainly the case that this commission that disqualified, I won't call them so much Baathists as secularists, uh, from running for office, uh, you know, certainly they have their own reasons to do this. Uh, Lamy himself is a candidate for parliament, uh, and that's been criticized, uh, and he's on the religious party. Uh, but then, of course, they're also being encouraged to do this by their uh, uh, patrons in Tehran. So the Sunni Arabs in Iraq are fit to be tied about this, these developments. They're very upset. Uh, I, I don't think that it will necessarily cause them to be excluded from parliament because uh, the elections now in, in Iraq are held on a province-wide basis, so, so the district is the province. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there are several Sunni-majority provinces, and the Sunnis do have a chance to elect a lot of parliamentarians, uh, even if they don't have a chance to elect those particular 500 people. I see. Well, it'll be very interesting to watch. I want to shift now to the situation in Pakistan and Afghanistan and the capture of Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar, B-A-R-A-D-A-R. And uh, you've covered this in some detail, and I recommend that people go to wancole.com uh, and read it for yourselves, because uh, you give us some background and establish that Baradar has been credited as the military leader of the what you call the old Taliban, and we'll define terms here in a moment, uh, and that his capture is significant in that respect. And as some have uh, uh, cited, uh, you know, it doesn't really necessarily cut off the head of uh, an organization like this, but it does appear to be uh, a very important breakthrough and the fact that he was captured and not just killed by a drone attack uh, means that he possibly could be providing intelligence. And the way the White House has played this uh, was kind of a don't-gloat policy. Uh, this actually, they, they uh, persuaded the New York Times to hold the story for a few days until it became widely known in Pakistan. Uh, what's your comment on this capture and uh, is it significant in terms of trying to dismantle at least one wing of the armed insurgency in Pakistan, Afghanistan? Right. So the wing of the insurgency that uh, Baradar uh, helped to lead is, is the Taliban of Mullah Omar. Uh, there are now other groups being called Taliban, uh, and, and so a lot of commentators refer to Mullah Omar's group as the old Taliban mm -hmm. uh, from the 90s. Uh, and they had been uh, based in, in the Pakistani northern uh, Baluchi city of Quetta, but uh, uh, they've been under uh, such uh, pressure from the U.S., and there have been drone attacks in the northwest, uh, that some of them relocated to the southern uh, port city of, of Karachi, uh, where the Pashtuns, and th these Taliban are largely from the Pashtun ethnic group, are, are, are a tiny minority in Karachi, uh, and, and probably pretty noticeable also. Uh, I don't think probably Kar Karachi has advantages as, as a hiding place. It's kind of like, you know, New York or Los Angeles is huge, uh, so it would be hard to find somebody in a way. But on the other hand, uh, you know, Marauder apparently was using a cell phone or uh, somehow being in an urban environment, he exposed himself to U.S. 
electronic uh, surveillance. And so uh, the National Security Agency seems to have gotten a, uh, a hit on him uh, from, from electronic surveillance. And so they were able to triangulate and figure out where he was and gave that information to the Pakistani uh, Inter-Services Intelligence, uh, who, who went in uh, and arrested him. Uh, so this was uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence and Pakistani intelligence uh, cooperating in the arrest. Pakistanis have long said that they'd be glad to arrest these people if only they knew where they were. They don't have the resources necessarily to track them down. The U.S. has been very skeptical of this. Uh, Hillary Clinton told them to their faces that they were lying about this uh, recently. Uh, but uh, the Pakistanis are saying, you know, here's evidence. You, you tell us where they are, we'll get them. Uh, and it's, of course, not the first time it's happened. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was arrested in Pakistan and uh, Abu Zubaydah and so forth. But this is the highest level uh, uh, Taliban leader uh, that's been arrested in Pakistan. And he had reformed the military structure of the old Taliban to make it more effective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, there seems to be some speculation that they're going to be able to, uh, you know, send Dick Cheney in to interrogate him and that he's going to compromise uh, his his fellow leaders in the old Taliban. I, I find that uh, pretty far-fetched. Uh, he, you know, these people are pretty dedicated revolutionaries, and so I, I find it hard to believe that he would uh, spill his guts the way the uh, uh, Christmas Day uh, uh, underwear bomber, uh, Abdul Muttalib, uh, is reported to have done. Yes, it's, it's hard to know uh, about uh, whether he'll, he'll talk much or not. About 50% of people who are taken prisoner by the enemy break uh, over time. And, of course, famously John McCain did when he was in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, so uh, it just depends on what kind of a person a Mullah Baradar is. Uh, in some ways, how much will he has and so forth. And we don't know, you know, now that he's been taken into captivity, can the Pakistani intelligence track down family members, people who matter to him? Uh, there are ways of putting pressure on him. Uh, it's certainly not the case that he, I think, that he would break under, under torture. Uh, but there are other uh, uh, ways of doing it. But I think the main, uh, the main uh, outcome of his capture is not so much the intelligence that he might provide uh, as that he appears to have been a particularly capable uh, military commander. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, innovated in uh, having the Taliban in Afghanistan set many more roadside bombs as a way of attacking uh, U.S. and NATO troops. Uh, and uh, adopted some of the guerrilla tactics that had been successful in uh, the Sunni Arab areas of Iraq uh, for Afghanistan, uh, including suicide bombings, which had, you know, I think until 2005 or so, no no Pushtun male had ever committed suicide. Uh, And uh, so this was an innovation. Uh, And uh, so, you know, you take somebody out who's capable like that uh, and on the ball, and and it it does harm uh, the organization. And you take enough of the leadership out, and uh, the organization might collapse. So that's the hope. Uh, I I wouldn't bet the farm on it, but uh, it's it's certainly a a victory for uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, and a defeat uh, for the old Taliban. 
And Professor, if you'll indulge me, I just want to read a paragraph here from your blog uh, to help listeners understand the way the American media uh, just uh, refers broadly to insurgents as Taliban members uh, or just Taliban. It's not really a membership organization with cards and uniforms. But you parse it this way, that uh, there is the original Taliban of Mullah Umar. Uh, there is the Haqqani Network, founded by Jalaluddin Haqqani. That's based in northern Waziristan, and it's led by Haqqani's son, Siraj. There is the Islamic Party, or Hizb-e-Islami, of Hikmatyar. That's based in eastern Afghanistan. And the Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan, or the Taliban movement of Pakistan, whose leader, uh, Masood, was uh, reported recently killed by a U.S. drone strike. So I think it's very important for people to understand that this is not a uh, unified, top-down organization, uh, even in the manner that al-Qaeda is reputed to be. Oh, no, yeah, it's very diverse. In fact, you know, Talib means seminary student. Uh, so the old Taliban had gone through those seminaries. They had been refugees in northern Pakistan from the Soviets, and, and the boys had gone through those seminaries in northern Pakistan, which kind of gave them an esprit de corps, uh, and they were loyal to Mullah Omar. Uh, but some of these groups uh, are much more independent. Uh, Golbadin Hikmat Yar uh, actually was the CIA's favorite back in the 80s. Uh, he was led one of the seven Mujahideen guerrilla groups that Ronald Reagan called Freedom Fighters. Uh, and, and his guys, you know, would meet in the White House uh, with, uh, with Reagan's staff and Reagan uh, to plan out attacks on the Soviets. So uh, of, of the billions uh, of dollars that the U.S. Uh, gave to the Mujahideen, to the Freedom Fighters, uh, a lion's share actually went to, to Hikmet Yar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's an old-time U.S. Uh, ally and, and, and probably a CIA asset, who, uh, after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, decided, well, they're no better than the Soviets, and so turned against us. Uh, but he, he had fought Mullah Omar and the Tal- Taliban. He'd never, he, he was from a different group altogether. He'd never been part of the Taliban. Uh, and if they have any alliance right now, it's, it's merely a, you know, a, a, of convenience, it's tactical. Haqqani also, uh, Jalal al-Din Haqqani, was likewise one of Reagan's freedom fighters. Uh, and he's now turned on the U.S. So to, to, to gather up all these guys and, and, and say that the same thing, you know, it's just wrong. They do have a broad uh, uh, alliance uh, against U.S. and NATO presence in Afghanistan, uh, and there may be some tactical cooperation. But uh, as you say, it's not a tight command and control. Well, and I, I guess the other piece of this is that uh, the U.S. Uh, oversimplifies, and, and I was frustrated by President Obama's de- December 1st speech, where he didn't uh, make a distinction between these groups. And the most particular issue for me is that uh, one thing that these four disparate uh, uh, Talibanish groups uh, do have in common is that they're not particularly interested in exporting uh, jihad. Uh, that is more peculiar to al-Qaeda, and yet I, I was frustrated by the way Obama uh, just, uh, you know, used interchangeably uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban in his December 1st speech where he argued 
uh, for putting an additional 30,000 American troops in Afghanistan this year. Yes, there doesn't appear to be any significant al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan proper. And moreover, something like 10 to 15 percent of Afghanistan is now controlled by these insurgent groups uh, that they're being called Taliban. Uh, If they're already controlling 15 percent, but they don't have uh, much in the way of al-Qaeda amongst them, uh, then you can't make the argument that they're uh, so closely allied with al-Qaeda. Of the four, uh, Haqqani uh, in in North Waziristan is reputed to have the closest links to al-Qaeda. Uh, but uh, the other three, not so much. And Hekmet Yar has been brutally critical of al-Qaeda. He, is, he's, he sees al-Qaeda as having uh, horribly and futilely brought down the wrath of the U.S. on uh, Afghanistan and caused it to be militarily occupied again. Uh, so... Um, I agree with you, Peter. Uh, uh, President Obama, uh, you know, is, is, is a f- a f- a breath of fresh air co- compared to what went before, uh, and uh, on a lot of domestic issues and, and many international ones, I think he's had uh, real successes. I think uh, his team, for some reason, doesn't seem to be very good about getting the word out about things like withdrawing from Iraq. Uh, but on this Afghanistan thing, uh, I just think that he uh, has a fixation uh, uh, on Afghanistan and that the rhetoric that he uses uh, about it uh, is, is just, you know, factually incorrect. Uh, and you could make an argument if you wanted to be a liberal imperialist that, you know, Afghanistan is a basket case. It's got an insurgency. We overturn the government there. We have a responsibility to set things right before we leave. You know, but but to say that we have to have an extra now it's uh, an, it's it's an extra what fifty thousand troops in Afghanistan uh, in order to fight Al Qaeda there that's just you know playing loose with the facts. Yeah, and to invoke nine eleven and to also uh, embrace the concept that the surge in Iraq was successful simply because we inserted more troops. Uh, I, I found those insulting and infuriating because. Unlike the predecessor, uh, Obama does know better. He's a smart man, and uh, I don't for a minute uh, think that he is uh, confused or ignorant uh, about the various facets we're discussing right now. Well, he opposed the surge in Iraq, and then he he later on during the campaign said that uh, even in the aftermath, he wouldn't have done it uh, even so. Yeah. And yet, when he got into office, the first thing he did was wanted to have a troop escalation in Afghanistan. Um, I, I think it is true that, that uh, uh, General uh, David Petraeus and General Stanley McChrystal, people who were associated with the escalation in Iraq, uh, believe that they made a big difference by switching from counterterrorism to, to counterinsurgency tactics, from just targeting terrorists and killing them, which hadn't been effective, uh, to say the least, to going in, uh, taking uh, a town holding it in the long term, clearing it of insurgents, uh, making friends with the local people, reestablishing security, uh, allowing the local economy to flourish, uh, opening the bazaar, uh, making links with local elites. They did those things. You have to give Petraeus credit that, unlike a lot of the generals, he didn't slap people away. He did try to reach out to them in Iraq. 
and they but they think that that was what turned the tide and that they can repeat this in Afghanistan. And in my view, while I don't want to say that they had no effect, the big thing that happened in Iraq was that the Shiites won the civil war and they ethnically cleansed the Sunnis from Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And that's why the violence declined. Yeah, the there partitioning... Were, there weren't the, very many Sunnis left in those neighborhoods. Yeah, the, the partitioning uh, had a major effect. The payoffs to the Sunnis in Al-Anbar uh, pacified them during a critical period. Um, so, you know, there, there was much more involved than just committing more U.S. forces uh, to what is clearly a, uh, an improved situation. Uh, I don't think we can rave about it, but it certainly improved from the dark days of, of 2005-2006. So that brings us to the final topic I wanted to discuss with you today, and that is uh, this uh, invasion uh, or an attempt to reassert control over Marja in Helmand province in southern Afghanistan. And uh, there, there are kind of two threads in the news accounts, Professor. One is that, uh, you know, we rolled in and the Taliban basically just melted away. Uh, and the other is that uh, there are pockets of insurgents who are standing and fighting more as guerrillas than, uh, you know, a direct confrontation. And one can certainly understand that. Uh, there are also roadside bomb concerns. And uh, we've also uh, managed to kill more Afghan sub- civilians uh, using rockets this time uh, instead of uh, uh, aerial bombardment. Um, but it, it strikes me that one of the curious factors here was that they made a big announcement in advance. Hey, we're coming to Marja! So that any effort to try to surround and capture or kill the insurgents who have been in control of that town uh, was was basically ruled out by the trumpeting of the fact that, hey, we're on our way. <laughs> yeah, well, General McChrystal openly said that they're not interested in killing Taliban. Uh, that's not the point of this mission. Uh, and uh, it is his counterinsurgency doctrine, which is take clear and hold. Uh, so obviously, if, if you make an announcement uh, that you're coming and the Taliban decide to fade away, as guerrilla groups would tend to do, that actually helps with, with the clearing, mm-hmm. uh, and it helps with the taking as well. So there are two operations, the British coming down from the north uh, to Nad Ali in Helmand province, and uh, the U.S. coming uh, west uh, from Lashkargar to, to uh, Marja. Uh, in Nad Ali, the Taliban mostly just faded away, and the British now have three-fourths of it. Uh, in uh, Marja, uh, the Taliban uh, have put up a kind of sniping resistance from buildings, uh, and they set a lot of roadside bombs, but as you say, they haven't uh, stood and fought uh, in a conventional manner. Uh, but, you know, so far, the statistics on this campaign don't make it sound to me like a major battle. Uh, 20, 27 Taliban announced killed, uh, four uh, NATO troops uh, killed, and 37 wounded. I think, well, that was yesterday. There's, there's unfortunately been some casualties today, but it's still, you know, every human life is precious. I, I don't want to make light of it, but that's, you know, I, I, you look at some of the battles in World War II in places like Guam, and uh, uh, the statistics are in the thousands. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a small operation, not very, uh, not very uh, kinetic, not very combat intensive, uh, and I think. 
What it really is, is is an attempt to take these areas away from the Taliban because they're poppy-growing areas and they generate revenue. Mm-hmm. And so if uh, if you can take, uh, clear, and hold a place like Marja uh, and Nad Ali, uh, you destroy the heroin labs, uh, you uh, give inducements to the farmers to grow wheat instead of poppies, you deprive the Taliban of an income of something like two hundred thousand uh, dollars a month, and in a very poor country like like Afghanistan, as the fifth poorest in the world, two hundred thousand a month is a fortune yeah. and buys a lot of bombs. So the hold part: Do we have enough troops, <clears throat> even with the commitment uh, of additional American forces uh, in the past few months, uh, to hold? Uh, these various flashpoints in a huge, sprawling country like Afghanistan? Well, no, the, the, the U.S. troops are very thin on the ground. It's, Afghanistan is an enormous country, uh, and uh, uh, the Pushtun areas uh, are uh, rugged and craggy. Uh, th- their hope is that they can bring in uh, newly trained Afghan police, uh, and military to to do the holding in the long term, uh, that uh, that the U.S. troops will pave the way for Kabul's forces to assert themselves, uh, and uh, that part of the plan is the shakiest of all, uh, because uh, Afghan police uh, are notoriously corrupt. Uh, a lot of the new recruits to the army and the police appear to be illiterate. Uh, many are drug users, uh, and so uh, there's a real question of governmental capacity, of, of whether the Kabul government is up to counterinsurgency, which does require this holding business. Now, General McChrystal says he's got a government in a box uh, coming behind him, but there are civil administrators, uh, there are police, and uh, there are elements of governance coming out from Kabul loyal to the Karzai government. Uh, which will now be inserted into Marja and, and Nad Ali uh, to make for prosperity and security and to uh, keep the Taliban from coming back. Uh, we'll see. You know, this is his theory of it, uh, but uh, uh, it, it does depend uh, on, on Karzai uh, being able to step up and play the kind of role in a way that Nouri al-Maliki, uh, Nouri al the prime minister of Iraq, played in the past three years, of, of getting control of the military, uh, of, of using it to uh, put down militias and supply security. And nobody that I know of thinks that Karzai is anything like Nouri al-Maliki in this regard. Well, and just to amplify what you said about these recruits uh, into the Afghan army and police force, uh, their loyalties are not uh, firm. Their training is, uh, you said, about in one report on your blog, uh, about two weeks of baton training. Uh, most, most, uh, more than half are illiterate, so they can't do basic uh, police duties of inspecting documents and uh, writing up tickets and reports. And uh, so, it, to me, that is the weakest uh, part of this, the idea that uh, we can Afghanize uh, the control of the country seems to be a, a premise that uh, is not sustained by the facts. Yeah, and, and you know, Afghanistan uh, is still a clan-based society, and uh, there's a lot of feuding going on. And I, 
I have a feeling that a lot of what we call Taliban or insurgents or, or whatever are just clans that got angry with the central government and uh, went into insurgency. And that kind of thing has been going on uh, uh, for you know hundreds of years in Afghanistan. And the idea that uh, the U.S. is going to come in and make them Eisenhower's America uh, overnight uh, is just a little far-fetched. So yeah. I expect there to be trouble in the Pushtun regions for a long time to come. Uh, I think the real question is, can Obama uh, and his team in Afghanistan uh, stand up a, a, a military and a police uh, and a civil service uh, over the next uh, few years, over to whom Afghanistan could be turned and then have the place have a modicum of security? You know, can, it, can it at least rise to the level of Iraq? Uh, and uh, that's, that's the big question. This is the gamble that Obama has made. If he can pull it off, uh, he'll be a great success. Uh, if it goes bad, uh, it, 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 it could be Lyndon Johnson. Professor, I really appreciate your time today, and I always learn a lot in talking with you. Thanks for joining us, and uh, I will be in touch and talk again soon. It's great being on, Peter. Take care. That's Professor Juan Cole from the University of Michigan, com. I recommend his blog. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. Our program is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. There's a very special introductory offer just for you. Imagine a time when it all began. President Obama has unilaterally given away one of the hard-fought gains of the progressive left over the last 30 years, announcing that he is approving loan guarantees for the Southern Company to build two new nuclear power reactors near Burke County, Georgia. Our transition music here by the Canadian band Rush, that's called Manhattan Project, which takes us back to the development of the nuclear weapon during World War II. And uh, nuclear power is certainly a part of the landscape here in the United States, but it's been fraught with problems, cost overruns in particular, and uh, we still don't have a solution to the nuclear waste issue. But President Obama, while acknowledging the waste problem, says, quote, on an issue that affects our economy, our security, and the future of our planet, we can't continue to be mired in the same old stale debates between left and right, between environmentalists and entrepreneurs. Our competitors are racing to create jobs and command growing energy industries, and nuclear energy is no exception. Now, to the president's credit, he doesn't say nuclear. He actually knows how to pronounce the word. But it's very troubling that in his State of the Union message, he tipped his hand that he would uh, advance the interests of the nuclear power and nuclear construction industries in this country. And he's also prepared to give away offshore drilling rights. 
Joining us to talk about the nuclear issue is Kevin Camps. He's with the organization Beyond Nuclear. Their website is beyondnuclear.org, and it was founded by Dr. Helen Caldicott. Kevin is a specialist on the nuclear waste issue who's uh, been focused on the Yucca Mountain site in Nevada for many years. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Peter. Glad to be here. What to you is the most significant problem with the president's pronouncement here? Well, the financial risks would be entirely or nearly completely transferred onto the backs of the U.S. taxpayers for this uh, radiologically risky industry. So we're talking about 80% of the total project cost. And at the Vogel Nuclear Power Plant in Georgia, the uh, company admits that these two reactors will cost $14 billion. So what President Obama just announced yesterday morning was an $8.3 billion federal, federal taxpayer-backed nuclear loan guarantee. It makes the American taxpayer the co-signer on this project. So if this project fails and goes belly up and defaults on its loan repayments, then the uh, American taxpayers get to pay it back to the tune of many billions of dollars. And unfortunately, a pattern is developing here based on the Wall Street bailouts, where this president believes in socializing risk. That means spreading it across the taxpayers, but privatizing profit. And that seems to be the mantra in this play right here. You nailed it entirely. Uh, The nuclear power industry is a very wealthy industry. It's 50 years old. It's been subsidized left and right to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars at taxpayer expense, ratepayer expense. And a typical ballpark figure for how much money this industry makes is a million dollars a day in net profits per reactor. Because the reactors do generate a lot of electricity, which they sell, and they pocket that money as profit. And they like to brag about the tax revenues they generate for the county they're located in or the charities they contribute to, you know. But that is pocket change for these companies, which are making a million dollars a day in net profits, who have externalized many of their costs, one being high-level radioactive waste that remains deadly forever, another one being the routine release of radioactivity into the environment on a daily basis from these operating reactors, Uh, another one being the liability of a catastrophic accident being transferred to taxpayers as well. The way that works is, uh, at this point, if there is a major radioactive release due to an accident, the nuclear power industry as as a whole, as a community, as a pool of money, and their insurance providers would pay about $10 billion in damages. Above that, it would be the taxpayers yet again. And you can expect uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in property damages downwind of a, of a major radioactivity release. And, Kevin, this is often being sold to us now as a response to climate change and that nuclear power plants are benign because they don't have smokestack emissions. And it's true, they don't emit carbon. And I don't know the specifics of this site in Burke County, Georgia, but I have to suspect that it's near a body of water that will be superheated in order to cool these two new reactors they're planning to build. Well, you're absolutely right. There are two operating reactors there currently. This would make it four. And they use uh, the Savannah River right there as their cooling water supply. And you're right, there's tremendous releases of thermal pollution into whether it's a river or a lake or the ocean, next to these nuclear power reactors, they depend on discharging um, large amounts of heat into the environment. And in fact, just to be precise about it, one-third of the uh, heat generated in a nuclear reactor core is used to generate electricity. The other two-thirds is released as waste heat, mm-hmm. if you can believe that. And this, this is an immense amount of heat 
And that's in addition to the radioactivity and the toxic chemicals that are released by nuclear power plants. So it's creating, for instance, in Diablo Cove, California, what was once a lush underwater environment before Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant was built, yep. is now a, uh, a wasteland. It's a, uh, a dead zone in Diablo Cove. It was an oasis of biological diversity, and now it's, uh, it's uh, rock, just and- plain rock, no life. And in the past, the Savannah River has been known to get so hot that fish, they're not quite boiled, uh, not that you could eat them, but the fish die because the water temperature has been so high. Yeah, we uh, put out a report um, in 2000 that we're currently updating. It's called Licensed to Kill by Paul Gunter and Linda Gunter. And it's about how not only the thermal discharges kill aquatic organisms, but these... um, large suctions to provide up to billions of gallons of water per day into a nuclear power plant. It's hard to imagine what that looks like in size, but it's, it's a square mile of ocean, let's say, to a depth of 14 feet deep sucked through a nuclear power plant. So all of the life in that water, especially the microscopic stages of fish and other aquatic organisms, are destroyed. They're killed, and they're churned back out as um, debris into the environment. In addition, large animals even will be sucked into nuclear power plant cooling systems. We're talking about endangered sea turtles. We're talking about um, fish, schools of fish that get sucked in in the adult uh, stage of their life cycle. And it's, it's just causing um, ecological damage that often goes unreported. And, Kevin, when we look at this situation, we have a president who spouts the industry line of clean coal And we know intellectually that that's an oxymoron, that coal is not clean when you extract it, coal is not clean when you burn it, and the efforts to scrub coal emissions and to capture the carbon um, are, you know, hardly worthy of the moniker of clean coal. And now they want us to believe that nuclear power and uh, its various uh, byproducts are somehow safe and good for the environment. This is downright Orwellian, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Uh, when, o- when Obama said safe and clean nuclear power in his State of the Union speech, it happened to be the most unpopular single sentence of the State of the Union, according to Move On, which was doing a real-time poll of its membership. And, you know, how can you call something clean that, for one thing, generates high-level radioactive waste that remains deadly for a million years? How can you call something clean that, Right now, as we speak, at the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant, a 40-year-old decrepit facility is massively leaking hazardous carcinogenic radioactive tritium, which is a radioactive form of hydrogen, into groundwater, into the Connecticut River. How can you call something safe that has never solved its accident risk, its now terrorist attack risks? Uh, We're talking about the potential for something worse than Chernobyl, A third of the reactors in our country are boiling water reactors with the high-level waste storage pools located five stories up in the air. They're wide open to losing their cooling water supply through attack or through accident. Mm -hmm. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission itself has reported back in 2001 a radioactive inferno could result within a matter of hours, and the casualty figures in the ballpark of 25,000 cancer deaths downwind from, from such a waste pool fire. So that's not safe. So we have such better alternatives than this in terms of clean and safe and affordable and uh, reliable, and they are energy efficiency, 
They are uh, renewable sources of electricity like wind power, solar power, geothermal, uh, ocean energy. And we're really, if we, if we embrace this nuclear power expansion that President Obama is talking about, we are going to get left in the dust by countries like Spain and Germany and Denmark, which are world leaders in wind power, in solar power. Mm-hmm. They don't have better resources than we do. We have better resources than they do in terms of solar potential and wind potential. But because of their wise and smart policies, they are world leaders in the energy of the future, which is renewables and efficiency. And Kevin, you referenced the State of the Union message, and uh, I was listening to it very carefully, and I read the transcript afterward. And while he nodded to so-called clean coal and safe nuclear energy and said that he would open up more offshore drilling, these are all anathema to those of us who have worked for over 30 years to clean up the environment and, you know, make America a leader in terms of green technology and practices. And so here's a quote from the president making this announcement uh, about the loan guarantees for the southern plant in Georgia. He said that uh, the president conceded, this is the Associated Press, that nuclear energy has serious drawbacks. He said a bipartisan group of leaders and nuclear experts will be tasked with improving and accelerating the safe storage of nuclear waste and that the plants themselves must be held to the strictest safety standards. Quote, that's going to be an imperative. But investing in nuclear energy remains a necessary step. Now, is this cynicism on his part, or is he simply trying to have it both ways, or is it both of those? Well, um, Washington, D.C. is sometimes called Washington District of Cynicism, so there may be some truth to that. Um, A part of it is that Obama and his administration are trying to pass climate legislation, and unfortunately they are entering into the politics of compromise where they're hoping to gain Republican votes by expanding nuclear power. But where Obama is talking about 10 reactors, the Republicans are actually after 100 reactors. So we have to be very careful here because it could turn out that this thing takes on a life of its own and we do not support a single new reactor being built. Well, and in that same speech, he couldn't bring himself to talk about climate change. It wasn't referenced at all. He didn't talk about Senator Boxer's bill for cap-and-trade, which I don't consider perfect, but it's the best approach to uh, reducing carbon emissions that I've seen so far. And, you know, I know the president uh, is close to the leaders of Exelon, which is an Illinois-based corporation, which is the largest uh, nuclear power plant operator in the country. His chief advisor, David Axelrod, used to be a paid consultant uh, to Exelon. And so in many respects, uh, this is not terribly surprising. But as you pointed out, you know, if, if this is part of a larger scheme to try to win Republican votes for the, the better side of this, which is to address climate change, the president has once again negotiated with himself and given away uh, something that will not require Republicans to deliver their votes. Well, that's a very apt analysis. I've been comparing this to the health care bill where the Democrats courted individual Republicans for over a year to try to get a single Republican to join them in the health reform bill. And they didn't manage. So here again, like I said, the Republicans are calling for 100 new reactors. Obama has indicated a willingness to 
pay for new reactors with taxpayer financial risk up to the level of 10 new reactors. So the best bet he has right now is Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, who's very pro-nuclear, but it's not at all clear that Lindsey Graham is going to say yes to a climate bill if only, in quotes, only 10 reactors are, are uh, purchased with taxpayer financial risk. And Kevin, how much private money is involved in this plan to build these two nuke power plants in Georgia? Uh, is, is there any private money beyond the direct capital cost of the plants themselves? Uh, well, the capital costs, which are so immense, the company admits $14 billion in construction costs alone without financing uh, interest rates, for, for example. It looks like there may be zero skin in the game by Southern Company, which would stand to profit from these new reactors to the tune of a million a day per reactor. So the way it's covered is 80% of the total project costs would be covered by these federal American taxpayer loan guarantees. The other 20% could be covered by the Japanese Export Bank, because this is a Japanese reactor design. It's Toshiba Westinghouse, uh, advanced passive 1,000 reactor, so-called. So the Japanese Export Bank, which I am not an expert on, but I bet you the Japanese taxpayers have a role in funding that institution. And then in addition, uh, incredibly, the Georgia State Legislature and its governor have passed into law what's called construction work in progress which means that Southern Company and the Georgia Public Service Commission can and are approving uh, increases to people's electricity bills so that they become unwilling and perhaps even unwitting, unless they're paying attention, shareholders in this project, (laughs) except that they don't get any of the profits. They get to put up the cost of Mm -hmm. building the thing without any electricity flowing to them for perhaps at least five years, and supposedly they'll eventually get paid back in lower electricity rates somewhere down the road. But if this project defaults, then they will have simply paid uh, significantly more on their electricity bills in the near term and get nothing in return. Well, and that's the flip side. You referenced uh, Diablo Canyon here in California a little bit earlier in our conversation, Kevin, and it took Pacific Gas and Electric Company almost 30 years to stick ratepayers with the cost of their huge overruns because they built the cooling system backwards, uh, 100% backwards, and then they discovered the Hosgri earthquake fault just offshore from San Luis Obispo. And this produced uh, cost overruns on the, in the range of three to five times the original estimate. Now, there are already two plants there near the site where they're planning to add two more in Georgia, So presumably they've done their environmental impact studies or just given up and declared it a wasteland. But the the cost overruns cannot be uh, uh, just put aside because we haven't had a nuclear power plant come in on budget um, pretty much in the history of the industry, have we? Well, it's really apt that you point that out because uh, the Vogel nuclear power plant, the first two reactors that are operating there now, are actually the... Most extreme, perhaps, there may be worse, but one of the best poster children uh, in the world for cost overruns. So originally there were four reactors proposed at Vogel, and the original estimate for the cost of the four reactors was $660 million. Oh, wow. Well, well they ended up building two of them at a cost of $8.7, I believe it is, $8.7 billion. That's a third, if you include the two reactors that didn't get built, that was a 13-fold cost increase over the original estimate. That's over a 1,000% cost overrun. And uh, so here come two more reactors at Vogel. 
those kinds of cost overruns were what delivered the death blow to the nuclear power industry in the 1970s and 1980s. There were scores of reactors that received uh, construction and operation licenses from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that ended up being canceled, that ended up being abandoned. Many of them defaulted on their loan repayments. And that's where the Congressional Budget Office came up with the figure of a 50% or greater default rate on this new generation of proposed reactors based on the past history. It's something that Forbes magazine in 1985 referred to as the largest managerial disaster in business history. Hmm. Wow. I mean, this, this is unsustainable in you know both financial and ecological terms. And it's just so distressing to see a Democratic president who talked about climate change as one of his central challenges to cave in, in this direction uh, on such a scale. Well, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the ecological unsustainability because the entire uranium fuel chain is a disaster from start to finish. And it starts oftentimes on indigenous people's lands here in the United States, in Canada, uh, in Africa, in Australia, where the uranium is mined. And although the, the natural uranium that comes out of the mines is uh, what the industry would like to call mildly radioactive, and it's true, the, the natural uranium compared to the uh, high-level radioactive waste is a million times less radioactive. But it is still radioactive, and it is still a toxic heavy metal, and the mining is so carelessly done. Uh, oftentimes they, in the past, have dumped just mountains of uranium tailings on the surface of the earth to blow with the wind, to flow with the rain. And since this happens on indigenous people's land, they bear the brunt of uh, this tragedy. And uh, the Navajo tribe, the Pueblo tribe in Canada, the Ojibwe tribe, have suffered high rates of disease that never even existed in their culture before. So the Navajo never had a word for lung cancer before the Navajo uranium miners were sent down into these mines without ventilators, without respirators, and were not even warned that what they were doing was dangerous. So we're seeing a repeat of that. The newest version of uranium mining is called in-situ leach uranium mining, where solvents, uh, powerful chemicals, are, are pumped into the Earth's aquifers, and they, they dissolve the uranium in the rock, and then it's extracted. Those aquifers will never be returned to their pristine state after this process takes place. It's, it's the newest version of uranium mining, and it's uh, being proposed at literally thousands of sites across North America, including many hundreds of proposals near the Grand Canyon. And that term of art is in-situ leaching? That's right, yes. Beautiful. They use uh, powerful chemicals that are themselves toxic to carry out the process. Now, Kevin, before you go, I wanted to get your comment, because I picked up the Wall Street Journal today to uh, get the Murdoch view of uh, this move by the Obama administration, and it's fascinating because it's on a page that is labeled the climate debate. And the main story here that uh, it covers uh, controversies about the science of global warming, which conservatives and industrialists have been very eager to promote. In the middle of the page is a, a box which kind of shows developments over the last year or two, and it's punctuated by a picture of a skier in Washington, D.C., uh, where you are, and you just left the, uh, the Capitol building, uh, uh, as an effort to show that uh, climate change isn't real because, hey, Washington, D.C. got a huge snowstorm. Then well, uh, the, mm -hmm. the treatment of the Obama announcement is buried 
in a story about the budget. Now, the budget's been out for, uh, what, two weeks now, but they frame this in the proposal for $39 billion in in, uh, carbon taxes uh, that are proposed in the Boxer Senate bill, but that's nowhere near passage. And so, yes, the numbers are projected in the budget, but they have no force. They're not real at this point. Then about four paragraphs in, it talks about the loan guarantees to a southern company uh, to build nuclear power plants. Um, and it, it's just fascinating the way they frame this as part of what they consider to be a phony debate about climate change. And they put it first in terms of what it might cost industry, even though their lobbying has successfully stalled the effort to pass a meaningful cap-and-trade program. Well, um, boy, there's a lot to chew on there. Uh, Rupert Murdoch is from Adelaide, South Australia. That's where he uh, started his first newspaper. Well, South Australia happens to host the largest open-pit uranium mine in the world. It's called Olympic Dam. It's had a series of accidents and incidents and radiation releases and worker exposures. So the uh, uranium mining in Australia is huge. It's about to surpass Canada as the largest exporter of uranium in the world. Uh, Australia is also a huge exporter of coal. And ironically enough, uh, Australia is one of the places in the world that's probably going to be the worst affected by the climate crisis. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that red herring of snow in Washington, D.C., Winona LaDuke um, points out that this isn't just global warming. This is climate destabilization. This is climate chaos. So who knows if this snowstorm right now in Washington is due to climate change. But the point is we can expect severe and freakish weather to be more common. So that's just, uh, you know, my gosh, when are we going to stop dithering about this issue? But in terms of of nuclear, yeah, um, I mean, Rupert Murdoch and a lot of the uh, establishment in Australia have a lot of answering to do because Australia claims to be um, very strong against the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Well, if you are exporting the world's biggest supply of uranium to other countries, then you are taking a huge risk that that uranium may fall into nuclear weapons programs. Mm-hmm. So the hypocrisy is pretty, uh, pretty blatant. There's a lot of money being made, um, and it's, uh, it's putting the world at risk, not just in terms of ecological devastation, but also in terms of nuclear weapons proliferation. Yeah, indeed. Well, Kevin, thank you for the the time you've given us today. I appreciate your insights. And just one final question about Yucca Mountain. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is there anything that can be done to make that into a safe nuclear repository? Or is it simply an illusion that there is a way to safely store nuclear waste long term? Well, we are very pleased and supportive of President Obama's uh, decision to cancel the Yucca Mountain project. So that project is likely dead. There still needs to be action taken to make sure that it's dead, but he has made some major moves to end the licensing proceeding to completely zero out the budget for Yucca Mountain. And it's entirely appropriate he did so because that site is a geological disaster waiting to happen. There are many earthquake fault lines in the vicinity. Some intersect the proposed dump site itself. And if waste were to ever be buried there, it would leak massively into the drinking water supply below, which supplies a farming community, a Native American tribe at Timbusha Shoshone in Death Valley, the Death Valley National Park, uh, the Ash Meadows uh, Wildlife Refuge. 
So that would become a nuclear sacrifice area, and we we should give tremendous thanks to President Obama for ending that dead-end project. But the problem is the waste does still exist. We need to stop making it. That which exists, we have to fortify against attacks and safeguard against accidents and containerize and isolate away from the environment for a million years into the future. So we need to stop making it, and we need to protect what already exists because we have no good solution for it. No country in the world has found geology that will contain this deadly material for a million years into the future. And the current Plan B, unfortunately, and Obama's energy secretary is as guilty as anybody of promoting reprocessing, which is extraction of plutonium. We mentioned uranium enrichment as a pathway to nuclear weapons. Well, plutonium is the other pathway to nuclear weapons. If you extract plutonium from high-level radioactive waste, it is ready to go in nuclear weapons. So this proposal to to reprocess commercial waste is uh, just really a bad idea. Um, The Ford administration and then the Carter administration uh, prohibited it because of India's use of U.S. reprocessing technology and a Canadian research reactor to explode its first nuclear weapon in 1974. If, if the United States reverses course and begins reprocessing commercial waste, it'll be a green light to other countries to do so, and we will see nuclear weapons proliferation like never before. We'll also see environmental devastation and the consequences of health uh, damage wherever this technology takes place because it's the dirtiest possible thing you can do with nuclear waste. And it will be paid for by taxpayers at, at astronomical price tags. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars to carry this out. So it's just a non-starter, and we have to uh, nip it in the bud right now. Kevin, I promise this is the last question. Uh, Stephen Chu is a Nobel Prize-winning physicist from UC Berkeley. He's got to be aware of the real risks here and what you just cited, that there is no safe way to store or reprocess nuclear fuel. Well, the, uh, the National Nuclear Labs largely grew out of and are still connected to the nuclear weapons establishment in this country. So there's a lot of groupthink. There's a lot of addiction to large sums of money. When I say large, we're talking billions per year in nuclear weapons programs. And so the, the current uh, fetish of the uh, National Nuclear Labs is reprocessing. They, they're looking at you know billions of dollars in research money, which is their bread and butter. And before he became energy secretary in the summer of 2008, uh, Stephen Chu, along with the other lab directors across the country, uh, published a a wish list of nuclear industry uh, requests. And one of them was a revival of uh, major research and development on reprocessing. So we really have to stand on guard and be vigilant against this push, not only from the nuclear power industry, from the national nuclear labs, but now from within the heart of the Obama administration. It's great that he canceled Yucca Mountain. That's to be thanked, and people should thank him. They should call the White House and say thank you for doing that because it protects California against the transports of these materials on the mm-hmm. roads and rails and waterways, right. for one thing. But California was downstream of Yucca. California would be the ultimate place where the spring water from under Yucca would surface full of radioactivity in Death Valley. But we cannot <laughs> embrace reprocessing as some kind of new illusion of a solution for the radioactive waste problem. That's what the industry is trying to do, is to just keep generating their waste because it's part and parcel of their business. They want to do it uh, ad nauseum into the future, ad infinitum, because they're making so much money at what they do. The problem is we are creating a hazard and a poison that will last for 40,000 human generations. 
And that's not a good trade-off. A couple generations' worth of electricity in exchange for 40,000 generations of uh, diabolical hazard. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear. Visit the website beyondnuclear.org. Thank you, Kevin. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate your work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. I'd like to hear from you. Email peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you